take care of yourself. Literally, if I pour into me, then I have whatever I need to offer to the people around me. That's always true. Um, taking care of oneself is taking care of the relationship. In this episode, we're exploring the question, how do I support a loved one who has experienced trauma? This might be a difficult, but also a very important topic. So if you've been tuning into these episodes because your loved one is struggling with the behaviors and negative effects of trauma, this episode is for you. We're bringing on therapist Tara Booker to get practical about the importance of showing up for ourselves so that we can show up for the people around us. Christopher, what were your big takeaways from this episode? Yeah, I really enjoyed listening to Tara talk about this topic and engaging with her around this. What was a big takeaway for me is just there's a fine line between supporting someone and making sure that they are responsible for their mm -hmm. own recovery or healing. Yeah. And that's a really difficult thing. And it was really nice to hear Tara talk about and sort of give insight into how to support but not enable. Yeah, I think that was such a huge distinction, supporting versus enabling. And then also just the importance of taking care of yourself. I love one of the examples she gave was that if someone asks you for a dollar and you don't have a dollar – you don't give it to them. But when we put that into a context of our loved one who is hurting and they're asking us for a dollar, we're just like, oh, we'll just, or if we put that in the context of someone who's hurting and needs something from us emotionally, we just say, oh, I'll just draw from it, even though there's nothing to draw from. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was a really great reminder of doing my own work so that I can actually show up how I want to for the people I love the most. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a simple concept, but I think it's, not easy to practice. And uh, Tara did a really good job of reminding us that. Yeah. Welcome to the Treating Trauma Podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Christopher O'Reilly. Join us for a limited series of conversations with trauma experts and world-class clinicians for Milestones, a one-of-a-kind, holistic, and specialized residential trauma treatment experience. Together, we'll explore how unresolved trauma from our past can disrupt and block us from being the person we want to be. Thanks for joining us, Tara. I'm Thanks. so excited to sit with you. Yeah, glad to be here. So I'm getting to know the Milestone staff in a different way. And I would just love to know, like, how did you get into the helping profession? I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. Yeah. Do any of us? That's the start. Yeah. yeah. People say, a lot of people say things. <laughs> I don't know if they know, but they at least have a, like, that sounds. Um, even when I went to college, still had no idea. My first two years, I was undecided. Um, so I wandered around and, like, tried to take classes that seemed interesting. Yeah. Um, and, like, anything human behavior, human exploration interested me. So then I found my way into some social work classes. And from there... I discovered that like, oh, I really like the idea of just like being a person who helps people figure life out. That was the simple version uh, in my little 19, 20 year old brain. Yeah. Um, and then as I started like exploring all the different realms of um, social work and therapy and what that means and all the ways you can help people, um, got into an internship uh, at a residential um, addiction-focused treatment center um, with women who are coming out of incarceration. It was a reentry program <clears throat> focused around addiction. 
and fell all the way in love with every bit of that. Um, like realized that I liked being kind of in the one-on-one and group and more Mm -hmm. like digging in, like what got you here? What do you need? What's going on? What are your feelings? Rather than like the kind of practical, logistical kind of case management side or um, administrative side of things. So that kind of gave me that guidance. And uh, then ever since I have stuck with the line of being like in the therapy realm because social work, as you know, you can kind of go different routes. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not just therapy. Um, and ever since that kind of undergraduate internship, I knew that's the focus. So I stayed in that role um, in all the work uh, that I did. It's interesting then. you started out in residential care. So what was it about residential care that kind of drew you in? Well, as an undergrad who doesn't have a lot of options about where you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was one of the ones that sounded interesting. Yeah, it would take you. Um, and would take me. Um, mm-hmm. And then once I was just in that residential space, it's it's like a very special thing. And um, you get really immersed like into the life of the client, you know, and into mm-hmm. the work that you're doing. And so I think it was um, – I think it kind of spoiled me. Yeah. <laughs> like – it would have been hard to then go after that into something that was just like once a week outpatient yeah. because it would have been such a huge shift. It sounds like the experience in residential kind of solidified for you what like this was the right path. Mm-hmm. That that was, yeah, that was a fit for me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and I'm interested to hear like as a social worker, you come at things with a different lens. Mm-hmm. So how has that served you in some of your various roles, like as a social worker and the way that you view things? Yeah, I think, I mean, as a therapist, it helps because social worker is very systems oriented. Mm -hmm. So um, we're really always looking at the whole um, of a particular person or a particular issue. So I think that's really essential, like as a therapist, um, whether it's they're here for addiction, but I'm going to look at everything. So I'm yeah. going to talk about like what's going on in your family, what happened in your childhood, what is trauma experience, mm-hmm. what uh, is your work and social life. And so that really informed I don't meet a new client and not ask all the questions about mm-hmm. their entire life. Like by a psychosocial assessment, which is what you very much learn as a social worker, <laughs> yeah, um, is a part of every first therapy session that I do, and um, mm. that full picture um, is is feels really like a guiding post for yeah. how I then decide like where I'll go, and I think it then informs me of even if we're focusing on a particular thing, um, I can know that there may be other pieces that are connected that may not seem as obvious to the client, but I have that information that then I can pull that in and make sense of things or uh, gain an awareness of what's really going on that may not be just about that thing. Yeah. That's interesting. Like, I don't have a social work background, Mm -hmm. but I think just being a therapist for a long time, you come to understand that you need a very broad understanding of all the different factors that impact who and why they're sitting in front of you in that moment. Um, I don't really know how you'd go about it any other way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like the way to do it. it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm interested with the lens at which you kind of look at things to to talk about today's topic, which is how do we support our loved ones who are experiencing trauma and experiencing the symptoms and the effects of that? We've kind of talked in other podcasts what trauma can do to us and how it can basically impact our everyday 
But how do we come alongside people? From the outside looking in, like, what does it look like when our loved one might be struggling with the effects of trauma? What are some of the signs that we can be seeing? Um, so I think the visible ones um, would be, I think, anything that feels like a change in, like, a pattern or, mm. like, a typical way that that person has <clears throat> lived their life or gone about things. Um, and some ways of thinking about that are – off, that may be easier or over or under functioning in like daily mm. normal life things, work, um, socializing, um, chores, exercise, food, sleep, um, anything that we all we do all those things whether or not we have trauma, uh, yeah. we do those things. I think we can think of it of of them being opposite of how mm. they are, yeah. and I think it's rarely that. What we do is we all have like tendencies, like someone may lean towards being a doer and being busy yeah. and having a full schedule. Um, and if they're uh, experiencing like uh, untreated trauma, they're probably going to lean harder into that. Yeah. So it may be just a few degrees turned up of doing even more or maybe a lot. Um there are times where then people crash, right? Yeah. Like that's a thing too, where they are typically a doer and they're still doing and they're keeping going and they seem normal. Uh, and then they just hit a wall and they can't do it anymore and they can't go to work and they can't get out of bed. Um, but living in the world and still keeping up most of the things we have to do that we're responsible for, I think is generally just leaning in harder to the way that we already do things. So some, I think that can make it harder to see yeah, um, because it's not the most obvious thing. It's not like this person never sat around and, you know, watched TV for two hours. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's kind of the, what they would do. You know, they may have leaned mm. in that direction of just zoning out on the TV, zoning out on their screen. But now it's to an even higher degree. They're spending more time doing that on a regular basis, more consistently than they were before. Um, so those kind of things, I think, are good ways to, to see on the outside. I think the overfunctioning piece is interesting to me. I remember you, Christopher, one time saying that people who come to milestones are often doing really well in parts of their lives. Mm -hmm. And from the outside looking in, if you're not paying attention they are exceeding. They're mm -hmm. exceeding in their career. They are exceeding in all the things they're doing. But it's the overfunctioning piece that I assume gets overlooked a lot. Yeah. Anything that is like socially affirmed. Yeah. <laughs> it's socially it's acceptable yeah. to yeah. be a workaholic. You're doing such a great job. It's rewarded. Yeah. Look at you. Like you're managing all the kids' things and you're running this thing and you're going to work and you're making all these strides. Um, so, yeah, those are definitely ones that we just don't see. And then things like sleep. And food are always, you know, good kind of very basic signs mm -hmm. that are often um, things we can see maybe. Tara, um, if yeah. um, it's just listening to you talking about some of the sometimes subtle but sometimes not so subtle signs, it just reminds me how important it is when you're in relationship with people to just be present with them yeah. and to just, you know, notice. Um and I think that's something that we can offer each other. Like when we're in relationship, like, hey, I'm going to pay attention to you and you pay attention to me and we can bring it to each other's attention when we see shifts. I think the question I have, and I, I just would love to hear you explain this. So why is there a shift in behavior and patterns when trauma is in the picture? Like, what's that about? Let's see how would I want to say it. 
the simple word that comes to mind is like there are feelings <laughs> going on. Sure. Um, so there are unprocessed um, internal uh, distress yeah. happening. Mm. So yeah. whether it's like a level of anxiety or fear that's kind of rooted in fear or um, some sense of like grief or sadness or shame um, that you're carrying as a result of having experienced something damaging, wounding, mm-hmm. um, or painful. And that hasn't really kind of worked its way through, which is a whole different conversation, but sure. it hasn't been kind of felt and processed and gotten what it needed, whatever that is. Then, um, it's kind of just in there. And I always kind of tell clients that like those feelings are like our lights on the dashboard of our car. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if the gaslight is on, like it's on, <laughs> yeah. you can see it. If you're, you can, if your anxiety is, is happening inside, if there's a level of something that's turning all the time, yeah. then you feel that in your body. And so then you want to reach, you want to find a way to either have a break from that, mm-hmm. um, to work it out, to feel like you're getting the energy out. So that overfunctioning, I think, is really um, a, very helpful for like yeah. fear that's turning and anxiety that's turning that you're trying to get resolve from and relief from. It's like, let me move. And your body might be telling you, like, I need to move something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to do something, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think there are ways, those are ways that we get – uh, a sort of temporary relief yeah. for yeah. those things. It sounds, from what you're saying, it's almost like the person's attempting, whether it's conscious or subconscious, to manage what's happening for them, mm-hmm. like the, the the impact of the trauma. Absolutely. Yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think from the outside looking in, how do you kindly approach someone? Like you were saying, we need to be present. We need to to see our friends. We need to see our family members. We need to see people in our community. How can I raise a flag to say I'm concerned about you um, in a kind and loving way? Mm-hmm. What are some of the support things that need to be, or trust that needs to be present before you do that? Um, I think I, I mean, if it's not a regular practice, that you do that in that relationship, then you don't start there. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really good. That's a good point. Uh, and so you start with whatever is maybe more regular, like for that relationship, whatever kind of conversations and ways that you talk about things with that person. Start with that same kind of MO. Um, and I think point to as much that you can point to. You know, yeah. tell them what you see. Um, be specific. Yeah. So I noticed, um, that you have canceled on our last two plans to get together. That's a, you haven't, that's not like you. And I just wanted to check in and see if there was anything more going on. I don't want to add stress. I don't want you to feel ashamed about it. I'm just concerned that it might mean that you're struggling with X that happened a few months ago. Um, and so I just want to offer a chance to, to, to tell me what you want to tell me about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think trying to not, um, even having an openness of, I'm just going to tell you this or say, Hey, I see this, or do you need to talk about blah, uh, without the other having an expectation or that the other person has to, yeah. um, uh, really having an openness to say, just, hey, do what you want with this. Even. Giving them agency of even yeah. their own story. Or yeah, or I'm just going to tell you about this, and if you want to talk about it, great. If you don't, that's fine. Mm. Um, and I, I think the other thing is also not – we have this tendency to have those hard 
conversations or broach those, you know, delicate topics Mm -hmm. once. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then if it doesn't get really, really well received (laughs) and it feels like they're really into it immediately, Mm -hmm. we don't do it again. Um, And obviously there's a balance between like hammering someone (laughs) who doesn't want to talk to you Sure. Uh, and just completely like opting out after the first time. Um, But maybe even saying that first time, hey, it's I get that that's where you are. That's all you want to say or you're telling me you're fine. If I notice, you know, some similar things in the next few weeks, I would like to be able to just check in again. Bring it back. Yeah. Yeah. Like go ahead and set yourself up with some accountability that and let them know I'm going to kind of keep checking on you. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you're saying because I think if you approach it in the way you're describing your loved one will be more likely to lean on you when they're ready. Mm-hmm. Tara, I can't help but think too, though, like if you see drastic behavior changes in mm-hmm. a loved one, like mm-hmm. let's say total out of character, mm-hmm. maybe they start drinking heavily or mm-hmm. they, they do other things that are self-destructive. Mm-hmm. I think like for me, at least my urgency to intervene would be much higher because there's a safety yeah. thing. But I also am not convinced that a real tough love approach will get you where you think think you like there still might be some resistance and denial and people have to come to their own conclusions sometimes like when there can be harm in the relationship by doing that like maybe when they are ready they're not you know you're setting it back that's interesting yeah that'll be my tendency too is like let's fix this now Mm -hmm. oh my goodness especially if like you were concerned for their safety yeah or their well-being or others well-being but um do you feel any differently about approaching someone that the situation is a little more acute or serious? Sure. Um, I think I would probably be more explicit even. Mm-hmm. And what I would also share is more of that fear in me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you know anything about a good Al-Anon program, uh, <laughs> which I have worked. And Al-Anon stands for what? Um, Al-Anon does not I don't know what Al stands for, but it's, I don't know what the letters actually stand for, but it's um, alcoholics, it's family or loved ones of of a person who has um, a mental illness or addiction, Uh, which is all about yourself. Like the program is about you. It's not actually about the other person's issue, which often people go into it thinking, you're going to help me figure them out. Yeah. Uh, And, and, you know, the best we can do is be aware of ourselves. The mm-hmm. only information that I really have to do anything with is my, is me, is what the are the feelings I'm having, the fear that I'm having, the love that I have for you, the things that I do see. And relationship means holding that openly together. Mm. Uh, it's it's not that doesn't mean that we don't share it and that there's no such thing as connection, right? Um, but when there's something really scary or life-threatening or acute going on, um, you don't have any more power than the other things. Mm. I mean, that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. You don't have any more power about that. Um, you you might up your your uh, react like engagement with mm-hmm. that a little mm-hmm. bit more. You might not be so like, talk to me when you're ready or uh, just check in. Are you okay? You might be more explicit and say like, I see this. Here's what has I've seen happen. Um, here's what I see happening in your life as a result mm. of those things. And I really don't want it to get worse for you, uh, for you to have to get better. The risks are really high. Uh, and then you might really invite specific things like, 
would you go to a meeting with me? Mm-hmm. Would could I, you know, help you find a therapist and make an appointment? Mm-hmm. Um, you might have more ex- like really explicit like immediate options to offer mm-hmm. to that person, yeah, so that they could make a choice quicker about yeah. what they're doing. Yeah, sometimes it feels like in those situations, even we have to s- change our boundaries to take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it can just be. Very stressful. Mm-hmm. And that's an amazingly difficult balance because you want to stay open and support your loved one, but mm-hmm. also take care of yourself at the same time. That, again, is a whole nother mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. I mean, really, if I was answering the how do we support a loved one experiencing trauma with one answer, it would be take care of yourself. Do your own work. Yeah. Literally, if I pour into me, mm-hmm. then I have whatever I need to offer to Mm. the people around me. That's always true. Um, Taking care of oneself is taking care of the relationship. And we know this about everything we've learned about a healthy marriage, healthy parenting. It's just true. Um, So it can feel futile sometimes because I'm not actively doing anything with that person. Um, But I have something to offer them. If I'm taking care of myself, Mm -hmm. if I'm paying attention to myself. Hey there. Thanks for listening to the Treating Trauma podcast. We love getting to serve you with this resource. At Onsite, we believe that emotional health is not just something you need. It's something you deserve. But we also know that prioritizing emotional health often feels overcomplicated and unattainable. That's why we've created our digital resources designed to meet you right where you are. Taken from the comfort of your own space, these courses offer practical application and immersive learning. Our online courses and masterclasses are designed to fit into your life and bring you accessible, affordable, and approachable mental and emotional health and healing. We've got classes about trauma, emotions, grief, narcissism, community, anxiety, and coming this fall, both boundaries and shame. As a part of your digital resources, you also gain access to our exclusive online community full of like-minded people on a journey towards wellness. Check out our digital resources at onsiteisonline.com. And as a podcast listener, you can get 15% off your purchase when you use the code TREATINGTRAUMA. Just head to onsiteisonline.com. That feels so counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. And I think we often think if we can fall into certain roles. Um, if we're in relationship with someone who's constantly struggling or have a pattern, like my role is I, I show up for you and I care for you. And so to take care of my own needs feels selfish or feels way outside of the bounds of what we said is this relationship. So mm-hmm. I would imagine that if you've been in kind of a relationship with someone like this, that there is work that has to happen where I have to start prioritizing myself or even value myself enough to pay attention to what I need. Mm-hmm. So. I think if if that's where you're at today, I just would give you lots of empathy because I have been there. I've been in relationships when my role is to be the carer for you. And it messes with uh, the dynamics of the relationship when I step back and say, I need to care for me first. And it's hard. Mm -hmm. Change the rules. So, Yeah. Well, it makes me think that if if someone has experienced trauma, then the relationship is now different. Yeah. They're different, Mm -hmm. which means you're going to be different. I think that's one of those, like, maybe mistakes 
things that we won't think about on the front end. You yeah. Know, we think about doing things the way we always do them, coping with stress the way we always cope with stress, dealing with the relationship the way we always deal with the relationship, dealing with that person the way we all. But this is different. There is now a different thing going on. So it, it probably is going to mean change mm-hmm. all around, uh, which is part of the challenge is I have to re- figure a new way. Yeah. Yeah. In talking about, you know, paying attention to our loved ones and paying attention to behavior changes, things like that. Tara, I'm curious from your perspective, if we see a lot of compulsive behaviors Mm -hmm. sort of develop, how do we know as loved ones or concerned people, you know, if what we're seeing is addiction specific or if it's maybe a reaction to trauma? Like, how do you Mm -hmm. kind of pull those two apart or I don't even know if it's important to pull them apart I'm just sometimes like what you see is not Mm -hmm. what it's not real clear and I'm wondering like how we can as concerned people know what to do in those situations sure I have so many feelings about this topic um (laughs) try to keep them as brief as I can the first one I'll say is you can't know Mm. as the non-person experiencing having that issue. And it isn't your job to know. Um, Your job is to be a... It's not your job. Our job in relationship with another person is to be a witness to them. Like, Mm. if I were putting it really simply like that, that's what I believe relationship is for, is for me to be a witness to you, see Mm. you, mirror you, love you, witness you. Um, And so everything else, like... That is I may have going on for me if I'm a person with the compulsive issue or the trauma is only I can really know um, what's what in that scenario. Mm-hmm. And um, so that that feels like an important first point. The second point uh, that comes idea that comes up for me is um, is just about pulling those two apart. So mm-hmm. um, I think that initially, those external things like those compulsive behaviors or addictive behaviors or um, risky behaviors. I mean, those are the things that draw our attention to the thing in the first place. So they're doing their part. If they help Mm. us see that something is wrong, they're opening our eyeballs. And uh, I do think that especially if they're risky, then you really do need to make sure you do something that's going to support trying to regulate or contain those behaviors as best as possible. I think to immediately divert to what's driving this, what's the wound or the trauma that's underneath it, uh, can be a bit of a a misstep. Mm. And I think really ultimately it's just, you just can't divorce them from one another ever. Um, moving forward and all the steps of the process, um, you really have to hold them both in what, what you're doing and how you're treating them. And initially what you need to do is, is try to regulate that behavior because if you're active in a compulsive behavior, then you're not able to fully drop into the deeper feeling of the trauma. And it could be a safety issue too. Yes. So if you're drinking or using substances um, abusively, then you can't really do that and touch the deep-rooted fear that may be underneath it. It's physiologically not possible. So to say we kind of have to find a way to contain, one, get some regulation of whatever that is, and that doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily mean completely not doing it, like Mm -hmm. if it's – 
you know, ruminating or um, working or whatever mm-hmm. it is that you may be doing at a high mm-hmm. level, um, then you need to have that at least uh, tempered or lowered enough that we can access the rest. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really hopefully what you can do is you can start to like move between the two. I kind of think of it as like dancing back and forth. Yeah. Like, let me yeah. put this one down for a second, the compulsive behavior and then move on over. Now that that my system feels okay enough to do that, come into the trauma, try to give that some space, take care of a little bit, release what I might need to release and then come back and look at this and say, okay, how do I now make sure I take care of you when I walk out of the room? Uh, when now that I'm done diving into that part, mm. um, but they're really essential to be treated really mutually, yeah. um, and to not say because I've addressed my trauma, I no longer have to worry about that yeah. thing anymore. Yeah. Which is yeah. our huge tendency as human beings. You know, we really want to be done with a hard thing mm. <laughs> or done with a life. Um, something that's impeding upon my yeah. freedom to just yeah. do what I want to do. I, I love like the two points that you've said that really stick out to me. And again, thinking about our audiences mm-hmm. of, of people who are supporting, might be needing to support someone who's struggling with trauma. Number one, take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And number two, it's not your job to diagnose or treat, figure out which mm-hmm. came first, the trauma or the maybe addictive behavior, compulsive behavior. Because that's not that's not the role of the concerned person. It's mm-hmm. It's to hold space. It's to offer support. It's to kind of help them when they're ready. Like, I think that's a really important message. One of the things you said, I think, has been really um, impactful for me of how I view my own story or view other people. You just said with a lot of empathy of the behavior is doing what it's supposed to do. It's raising the flag. It's making people aware. It's making you aware. And also it's helping you cope. And I think so often... We want to just be angry at the behavior without having empathy to say, I, I remember one of our therapists once saying that their addiction is what kept them alive and they were grateful for it because their addiction kept them alive from taking their life by suicide or, or kept them from dying by suicide uh, long enough that they could get the help they need. And so I just love that empathetic view of it, of just saying like, of course, often the behavior has roots and a reason for it. And it's doing what it needs to do by raising the flags. Yeah. I think that so many people will hear what you just said, that addiction kept someone alive and their minds are want to explode. Yeah. Like it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, and when you think about what it is temporarily offering a system, yeah. it makes complete sense. It is temporarily offering a system, which is the body that we live in. Mm-hmm. Which we forget we're not just a brain. We're also a whole body. Whole down body. Here. Yeah. Uh, and, it's giving that system relief, a break, feel good, mm-hmm. pleasure, sense of safety where their body doesn't have to live in tense fear all the time. It's giving it the thing that it needs. Uh, it just has really shitty, heavy, I don't know what words I can use on you. You can use shitty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> consequences on the other side that yeah. then just perpetuate that. And you don't stay there. That's the cycle we want to break. And yeah. to the point about what do we do with those? If there's a compulsive behavior, do I address that? There's trauma, do I address that? I think a lot of times people will say, if you can just stop doing that, right, then like you Mm. can get to that or just stop doing that one thing and then everything will be okay. And 
the reason that that is often not successful of just stopping the thing Mm -hmm. is because then that whole thing of how do I feel okay, safe, Mm. secure, relief, good. We still haven't answered that question. Yeah. What if we handed them instead Mm -hmm. to help them regulate all of that thing, the things in their system that whatever that drug of choice is, whether it's work or sex or drugs helps them do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to effectively remove something without replacing it with something more constructive or mm-hmm. it has to have, you know, it has to provide a similar relief in a hopefully a healthier way. Um, I think before we kind of land this plane, like what are some practical ways? I love that you said it's not your job to fix. And that's a reminder I think we all need in general in life. And also like do your own work. So where do boundaries come into this? And how do we show up for the people in our lives who may not always be receptive or maybe um, self-protective in relationships? So I'd love to talk about those two topics, I think, in particular, Mm -hmm. Um, because boundaries feel like a a really vague topic of like, I'm going to have boundaries with the person in my life. What does that mean? It's such a buzzword, isn't it? Such a buzzword. Uh, Where do boundaries come in? Of just like loving someone, Mm -hmm. but also like supporting them, having empathy, but not supporting a negative or destructive pattern. Sure. Yeah. Also something I'm super passionate about talking yeah. about. I think in the systems approach, you know, I think about this part. A lot. I think about the family's role. I think yeah. about that role a lot. Um, and uh, I think some very like nice and simple things that come to mind are just telling people you love them. Mm. Uh, reminding them you're I'm here to help you. In any way I can support your wellness, I'm here to do that. Just like verbal, true affirmations that you care about that person, sending them a card, taking them food, mm-hmm. offering them a ride to the things that might be helpful to them. Like, yeah, those are very simple things that really mean a lot. I think that there's a really cool idea of treating people who are going through uh, any kind of mental illness or instability like a sick person, like if yeah. a person was like going through chemo treatment mm-hmm. and like just showing up in the way that we would for them, knowing that we couldn't fix it. No, you would drive them to chemo. You would bring them a meal. Yeah. You would, yeah. Knowing that we couldn't do the work for them. Like yeah. we know all of that when someone's physically ill. And um, there's also a, a huge amount of compassion that we have for that person that doesn't really come with judgment about yeah. why aren't you just um, in terms of where to stop. Uh, I think that's often where we get confused and feel uncertain is like, where do I stop with what I have to offer? Um, I think that if you're going to extend, um, I think first the doing your own work is knowing emotionally, what do I have to give? Yeah. When do I actually, where do I, do I feel like I have that emotional resource to offer today? And if Mm -hmm. I don't, then not often. I don't, (laughs) we often like, if I don't, I'm just going to do it anyway. You know, if you don't, you don't. Yeah. That's just the truth. So I always like tell people, if you don't have a dollar in your pocket, you don't, you can't give someone a dollar. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, I don't have it. I can't give it to you. But we like try to trick ourselves. Like, but I'm just gonna do it anyways. Yeah. Uh, and it inevitably often is when we get tripped up, and it's not what we want to give. We didn't show up how we wanted to show up. We became irritable. We lost our patience. You didn't have it, and you went mm-hmm. anyways. You know. Um, So like check your emotional self of like, what do I have emotionally to give today? And then practically, I think 
showing up and having some parameters to that because a relationship of any adult kind should be mutual. Mm -hmm. That's right. No matter what's going on in that circumstance. So if I'm going to give you um, money, it's the big one for most folks, for treatment or therapy, even those things that feel like just everyone should give for that if they could, right? It's yeah. like it should just be pouring out for those good things. Yeah. There should be parameters, I believe, mm. about that. Because if I'm giving to you, what's the what's the mutual expectation of how you show up for that? Mm. So if you one don't show up, <laughs> then I don't continue to extend the money. Yeah. Um <clears throat> If I've invested, you know, in paying for treatment, then a certain parameter would be the, like an accountability for that person yeah. is how I look at it is, yeah. well, then whatever those treatment professionals recommend you do, then that's the parameter for me offering this. I'm going to give this if you're willing to follow mm. their recommendations for staying in treatment, yeah. for aftercare, all those things. This this sort of balancing act, but you know, we want to support, but we don't want to enable. Yeah. And for me, yeah, it's tough because enabling is when you're offering support and they're really not using it in a constructive way and maybe even using it in a maladaptive way, like you said, money or, or, you know, I think about taking someone to treatment and Mm -hmm. like the second you drive around the corner, they go to the bar instead, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and, and just so when there's not an open and honest working relationship and we're providing support, it could be counterproductive because we could kind of be helping to keep them stuck. Mm -hmm. I also think a lot about like when you, you know, really are helping out and they have to be less responsible for themselves. Mm -hmm. That can be really tricky too because you want to help someone that is struggling. Like I love the analogy like, hey, if you have a loved one that's going through chemo, you like you want to help them. Um, But then at what point does it switch from you helping them to them not having to kind of take personal responsibility for their own recovery or healing, whatever you want to call it. That's a tough one. Yeah. I think enabling is disempowering a person. Agreed. Mm. That's the word that I think of. And if, if we can try to use our, our own, you know, kind of intellect and our own internal compass about what feels like empowering that person and what feels like disempowering them. Um, And, Supporting alongside often is empowering and encouraging, and doing for is mm-hmm. off is disempowering. Yeah. And you know, that gets gray in the practicality of like everyday life and relationship. But I do think that if we look at what we're doing and we think about those two phrases, of does this feel like I'm empowering that person to mm-hmm. like really live their life for them to live well? Um, or do I feel like I'm disempowering that they are capable of living their life by doing for them, by taking responsibility for them, then that is a good compass, um, to use. And yeah, I think it's a great lens. Mm-hmm. And empowering I think versus disempowering. Empowering versus disempowering. What role am I playing? Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, this has been such a good conversation and I hope, um, what I've taken away is because I think even one of the questions I had is like, 
what are some access, like what are things that we could point people to? But I even think that question is rooted in, I have to fix someone or I have to have the solution for someone. And so I hope you all just here today, like it's not your job to fix it. It's your job to love and show up. And I love just how your disposition changed when I asked you, like, what are some things you can do? And you're like, tell people you love them. <laughs> like, just show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just really encourage you all to do your own work and, and prioritize yourself enough through this process um, and point them towards help and supportive people and professional people who can come alongside them in, in ways that will empower them. Mm-hmm. There's an analogy I often use uh, when correcting the the Cartman Triangle, which kind of talks about some of this, which is being more like a coach, Hmm. Um, which is I think like parents have to figure this out, right? Like, I don't want to do so much for you that you don't learn how to do for yourself, right? And being a coach is a good analogy for that. Um, I, I can't go play your position for you. But when you walk off the field and you just struck out, I can be there. I can give you a hug. I can give you some technique. I can, you know, if if I was fiddling like in the field and not in my ready position and I missed a ball, then I can say, hey, you know why you missed that ball? It's because, you, you know, so like coaches are not just like <laughs> gentle and kind. They can be critical, but mm-hmm. in a constructive way. Um, and so I think that can be a, a helpful analogy is there is – so, for example, if someone was like, I don't know what to do, I'm not okay, then I might say, let's try to figure it out together. Yeah. Together. Together. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to bring you the solutions. Let's look together. Yeah. Like, let's sit down in front of the computer. Let's get on the phone together. I'll be right next to you. I'm not going to make all the calls for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love the analogy of a coach. And when I think about coaches and really effective coaches, effective coaches, um, they practice what they preach too, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. They don't overextend themselves because then they would have nothing left to give. So th- it just, I think that really fits well. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Thanks so much, Tara. This has been so good. Thanks for having me. If you or someone you love is struggling with the negative effects of unaddressed trauma, The safety, community, and expert care of the residential experience at Milestones may offer the individualized help and healing you need. Milestones is a -a one-of-a-kind, holistic, and specialized residential trauma treatment experience, serving individuals adversely affected by symptoms of unaddressed trauma, including anxiety, depression, codependency, and PTSD. This innovative and integrative program offers a variable length of stay from 30 to 90 days, specific to individual needs. When life feels like too much, Milestones offers a refuge and a place of healing. Learn more at milestonesatonsite.com. Also, we'd love to help you explore the right option for you. You can connect with our admissions team for a confidential call at 1-800-341-7432 or email them at admissions at onsiteworkshops.com. You deserve this.